when you open the door for somebody else. Welcome back to the Vaccine Conversation with Melissa and Dr. Bob. We are talking with Dr. Tom Cowan, who mm-hmm. is the author of an amazing book that I think you all should get if you don't already have it. I've already been promoting it for the last several weeks myself, but it's called Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illness. Now, this is a n- new book. It just came out the end of last year in August. Um, and it's available on Amazon, has amazing reviews. Great book. Uh, we've already done one episode talking about about the first half of the book, which you can go check on our podcast to get up to date and and catch some really cool information um, on our two-part immune system, on anthroposophical medicine, and, and kind of uh, Tom's history coming into this particular focus that he has. And we're going to continue on in this episode, uh, starting with autoimmunity and uh, and Tom's work with autoimmunity. So, uh, Dr. Brown, anything you wanted to say? Yeah, I I guess I just – I want to give maybe a really – just a really brief overview of what I I learned from this book that I kind of already knew but had forgotten that I knew. uh, I guess I didn't have enough humoral uh, memory of uh, of this information. So, um, ha, ha. no humoral knowledge. No, no, exactly. Um, so, um, basically, the whole idea of, of, of course, autoimmune disease is where your own immune system is uh, artificially revved up so that your immune system turns around and attacks part of your body and makes that part of your body uh, dysfunctional. That's kind of in, in, a, in a very just brief uh, summary. Um, and the way we, it looks like the way we can best prevent that is by having the absolute healthiest and functional immune system that we can have. An immune system that's relaxed, it's working pro- properly. And, and so I think what really struck me about this book was the reminder of how do you achieve that? And and how do you get that kind of immune system so that you don't have all this autoimmune problem, you know, uh, when you're older? And it really kind of starts off in um, in childbirth through a, a natural labor, um, you know, natural, you know, unmedicated if you can labor. And sorry, that's coming from a guy. I probably should never say that as a guy, but uh, um, natural labor, uh, vaginal delivery, so the baby is exposed to mom's natural uh, bacteria. Um, no antibiotics involved so that antibiotics aren't killing off all that natural mm. bacteria. And so mom's mom's vaginal flora essentially seeds baby's um, uh, intestinal system with the healthiest bacteria to get that baby's immune system started. And then you feed it with colostrum. So the colostrum nourishes all those healthy bacteria. So those bacteria multiply and basically become the, the foundation of that child's intestinal immune system. And then you feed that baby uh, breast milk for the first few years and um, natural healthy foods that don't irritate your intestinal lining. So you essentially have a healthy intestinal lining that's intact. And then you, you, you avoid antibiotics and you avoid toxins that are also going to mess up that intestinal lining. And if you can get through your childhood that way um, – and really in a natural approach to, to raising a child and not intervening with things that are artificial, you've really set yourself up for a lifetime of good health if you can achieve that. And if there's a few stumbling blocks along the way um, where your intestinal lining is messed up either by uh, 
um, by you know, antibiotic overuse or or the need for a you know a cesarean delivery or um, or maybe you choose vaccination or you, or you you're you're not very uh, natural and organic with your eating so you get a lot of toxins and chemicals that you've messed up your gut and and created autoimmune or immune problems um, you then have to fix it and and uh, uh, Tom Cowan's book actually provides a lot of good guidance on if, if you weren't able to get through that preventative, you know, early lifestyle and approaching it perfectly that way, what can you do now to fix it and, and, and heal your gut, heal your immune system so that you can hopefully then move on through life being as healthy as you can be. And so that for me, that was sort of like a, a nutshell of what I got from this book. And I realized as a pediatrician, I could be more proactive at trying to ensure those early steps mm. in families and then, and then guide them when problems do occur. So, so uh, Tom, that's what I really appreciated about your book, and I, I loved that whole aspect of it. And so I think that's what we want to focus on uh, with part two um, is, uh, you know, is everything I just said. So I, maybe I just said it all for you, Tom. I don't know. Did I, do you have anything, uh, or Melissa, I don't know, maybe do you want to start off with maybe the first aspect of that? Well, one of the or things I really like that you say, Tom, is you say, so with millions of people suffering from autoimmune disease at a number of unheard of before, uh, the introduction of mass vaccination programs, how can this connection be deemed controversial? So un, the number of unheard of before introduction of mass vaccination program Autoimmune disorders, how can this connection be deemed controversial? So vaccines aren't the only mechanism for provoking the state of excessive antibodies, but they are certainly one mechanism, and I'd agree the dominant one. So a lot of times somebody might come to me and say, oh, the so-and-so's child has this autoimmune disease and they're unvaccinated. How do you explain that? Well, I agree. Vaccines are not the only source of environmental trigger or toxin that could be causing the body to respond in a way that attacks itself. You know, we have other options of things, but the whole point is, is that because we are dealing with other things, we want to limit the known sources as much as we can. And vaccination, of course, is one of them because the entire purpose of a vaccine is to stimulate the immune system. And we talked about with J.B. Hanley, these immune activation events and how the, increasing that likelihood is going to increase the chance that something could potentially go wrong and in this case turn into something like autoimmunity. But Tom, tell us your thoughts on, on what you've come, your conclusions on autoimmunity and, and how, you, how you think we can fight this uh, at this point. Maybe, maybe start with how it relates to vaccines in particular you know, based on your reading and your understanding. Okay. Uh, the only thing I would just, just caution, I mean, I, I more or less, whatever, whatever you say, agreed or appreciated what both of you said. The only thing I would correct, I think, would, it's the, the vaccines don't stimulate the immune system. They stimulate the humoral immune system. Okay, correct. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. There's, there's a big difference. Yes, yes, and, which we talked about in part one. So everybody make sure to go check the end of part one because right. we go into the breakdown of the cell-mediated and the humoral immune system and how they are different and how vaccines basically skip the cell-mediated reaction and go directly to the humoral antibody response, in which case missing the crucial element to allowing the body to respond correctly. So yes, the humoral immune system. Right. So we, every time, I mean, I may not do it every time, but every time I try to, if I talk about immune activation, I talk about 
humoral activation. Okay. That's what's happened. So the way I would put it, which, you know, it's, it's similar, but I, I'm, a, I'm a schemer, which means I put things in groups and try to simplify things for people. But so the, the, there's no doubt, you know, like I tell people, uh, there's the, I am trained as a medical doctor, and that's true. And there are some things I agree with, not a whole lot, but some. One of them I do agree with is the definition of an autoimmune disease is a person with elevated antibodies to one of their tissues. So Hashimoto's is they have elevated thyroid antibodies and lupus is elevated uh, ANA, which is basically against their DNA, and on and on and on. So that's the definition. So we can't sort of argue with that. There are cases like asthma and eczema and pemphigus that we don't know the antibody, but we presume there is some elevated antibody that's causing this, this inflammatory targeted destruction of the tissue. So in some cases, we know the antibody. In other cases, we don't know or we don't know how to look, find the antibody, but we presume that it's there. And all of those I'm calling autoimmune disease. So again, the, the point is we have elevated antibodies. Now, if you say, well, how do you get into elevated antibodies? Because that's the problem. Um, at least it's one way to describe the problem. So basically I say there's three ways. And the first way is infections. The second way is through uh, leakage of antigens through the gut wall. And the third way is through stimulation of the antibody part of our immune system, i.e. vaccine. So let's talk about those three separately. So it turns out, interestingly, that back in the 20s or so, uh, tertiary syphilis was considered a kind of autoimmune disease. So with tertiary syphilis, there's destruction of the aorta and the joints, and people go get demented and all kinds of nasty stuff. And you find elevated antibodies against something and so they say it's an autoimmune disease and then they find out that there's an organism that's causing the trouble and the, the body was trying to make antibodies to get rid of the organism unfortunately it wasn't successful just because it's apparently a tough organism to get rid of and so in that case you come along with a little penicillin and then you get rid of the spirochete and the antibodies go away because they were just the body's attempt to clear the organism. And so you cured them of this uh, so-called autoimmune disease because it was really just an infection that you were trying to get rid of antibodies. So that's one possibility. And some of the autoimmune disease have an infectious component, and most probably don't, but some do. So that's one way. The second way is you know, we have this model called celiac disease where we know that we have this antigen called gluten which gets through the gut wall where it shouldn't and then it gets into the bloodstream and then you make antibodies against it and those antibodies cause destruction of all kinds of tissue. So we actually have a well-known model of how uh, the the leakage, I guess you could say, or the the getting of the antibody antigens from the gut into the bloodstream call forth the production of antibodies to neutralize that antigen in the bloodstream. 
So it's what what I'm saying, and I'm certainly not the only one, is that process can happen with a lot of different toxins and other antigenic molecules, which are proteins. So anytime you have inflammation in the gut, for all the reasons that you just explained, Bob, with you know the gut flora and antibiotic use, so you have an overpermeable gut, you have leakage of antigens through the gut wall, the body says to itself, I can't tolerate having these foreign antigens in my bloodstream, so I neutralize them with antibodies. Then through the process of uh, what's called molecular mimicry, that antibody also cross-reacts with one of your tissues, and then you have an antibody-mediated autoimmune disease. So that's the second way. And the third way is, as we described in the first segment, you can just stimulate antibody uh, production, and that we do with adjuvants and vaccines. So a, a classic example is if you if you use aluminum as an adjuvant, the purpose of it is to stimulate antibodies. Mm-hmm. And I would also point out that this argument, that, which is what's called like a straw man argument, well, there's only you know 0.5 milligrams or some number of very small amount of aluminum, but that it's kind of a ridiculous argument because the reason that small amount is in there, no matter what the milligrams is, is because it's defective. In other words, it does actually make you make antibodies. The theory is that it will make you make antibodies to whatever's in the vaccine. In other words, maybe the diphtheria toxin or what, whatever antigen is in the vaccine. But I would point out that there is nobody, no theory, no person who says somehow aluminum only knows to make you make antibodies to a diphtheria toxin. That, that is simply not possible. Nobody thinks that. That would be ridiculous. So therefore, it makes you make antibodies to, you know, for instance, if there's peanuts in your blood, peanut antigens, either in the vaccine, which there are, or in, the, in your bloodstream, because you ate peanuts and you have peanut antigens in your bloodstream, you will then be stimulated to make antibodies against peanuts. And that's called, essentially, autoimmune peanutitis. Uh, because what you've, what you've stimulated is the production of excessive amount of antibodies. And so that, to me, is the predominant way uh, but includes all three of those. You could have an infection, you could have a disordered gut ecology, and therefore leaking antigens. And all of the and the third way is stimulating an excessive antibody response. Or you could have all three, or you could have two of the three. In any ways, those are the ways that people develop autoimmune disease. Now, the way it perpetuates is if you think about it. So you've now been stimulated to make thyroid antibodies, and then the antibodies go after your thyroid and they create a kind of an inflammatory destruction of the thyroid tissue, that will produce more thyroid antigens, proteins in the bloodstream, which then you make antibodies against, which then go after your thyroid, which then make more antigens, and then you make more antibodies, 
and now you've got a chronic disease. Walk us through the the ideas on um, glyphosate contamination of vaccines, because I know you you talk a lot about that in the book. That not only are vaccines um, over like overstimulating the humoral part of the immune system, but the the glyphosate that is contaminating uh, some of the vaccines that gets into our system and that interrupts the the gut permeability and that disrupts the the gut part of the this problem and that creates then allows more antigens into the bloodstream that then just perpetuates the autoimmune reaction. Tell us more about that. Right. So, so you know, humans and all animals, I guess, I'm not a uh, zoologist or a vet, so I can't really speak for other animals, I guess, but we have barriers so that we don't, we're not a toxic brew of, of you know, top foreign metals and, and proteins from other organisms. And the two main barriers are the gut barrier and the so-called blood-brain barrier. Mm-hmm. And the blood-brain barrier keeps anything that's sort of unwanted out of the brain, and the gut barrier keeps anything from the gut where there's a whole lot of antigens because there's food antigens and everything else that we're you know exposed to drinking and eating. It keeps those out, and then it has a very specific process of absorbing what it wants and getting rid of the rest. Uh, so that's how it works. The, the problem is if you give things uh, like glyphosate, which we know increase the zonulin concentration, which is a chemical that controls the size of the pores in the, in the uh, gut wall, you will increase the permeability to these foreign antigens in the gut. Once you increase the permeability, then you're now exposed, you have antigens in the bloodstream, and then you have to make antibodies. And, and it's also a, a good lesson. It's not actually the antibody's fault. You make antibodies because you're trying to neutralize antigens. Right. So that, and the reason that's important is the, the modern theory of treating autoimmune disease, which is to give drugs that's, that essentially stop you from making antibodies can never work. And, the, and if, if anybody doesn't believe me, just go to your local rheumatologist and say, how many people have you cured of rheumatoid arthritis right. with Remicade, Humira, Embril, whatever? And I tell you, the answer is zero. And the reason is because the antibodies are 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 the, the agent of the problem. They're the agent of destruction. But they're, they're being made because something is stimulating them to be made. Mm-hmm. In this case, an adjuvant or a foreign protein. And don't get me wrong, I want the people to make less antibodies too. But if you stop absorbing gluten or casein or, and if you stop eating glyphosate and increasing the porosity of your gut, then you don't have antigens. And again, we go back to the dumbest kidney is smarter than the smartest nephrologist. Your body will give up that strategy of making antibodies because there's nothing to neutralize, Mm -hmm. in which case the disease goes away and not because you suppressed antibodies, which never fundamentally works. It 
resolves the symptoms temporarily, and then when you stop, it's worse than ever, which is exactly what happens to every child with asthma or eczema or rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, but you'd stop it because you've stopped the stimulation for producing antibodies. In other words, as soon as you take the splinter out, your body will stop making pus. That's right. how it works. Right. And and so it seems like the whole key, the very first step in, in helping to improve any autoimmune disease is to focus on your gut, is to heal the gut. Uh, pretty much no matter what the autoimmune disease is, if you can heal your your uh, your intestinal membrane so that all those antigens are not leaking through from what you eat into your bloodstream, uh, those antigens are just staying in your gut and, and eliminating from your body, your immune system will stop overproducing all these extra antibodies and your autoimmune reaction will calm down. And that's kind of maybe basically the the first step, I think, in, in, in helping to improve any autoimmune disease. And I've, I've kind of learned this, uh, you know, bit by bit over the last five to 10 years. But, you know, I think most doctors are not trained on this at all. But I think this one, one issue is that probably the foundation of what most natural practitioners will do is they will work to heal, you know, heal the, the gut of their patients as the very first step basically through a, a type of autoimmune diet that's going to, that's going to allow the, the gut to heal up. Um, and this is a lot of what you see, too, with vaccine reactions. Treatment of vaccine reactions, issues with vaccine reactions, is you do see a lot of gut issues and needing mm -hmm. to treat the gut to improve behaviors or to help balance the system. So a lot of people in this community really are becoming aware of the benefit of a healthy gut and how the, the gut is connected to the brain and how it's also connected to things here like autoimmune disorders. Um, can I move forward a little bit just yeah. because I'm really interested? I would just, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I would yeah. just say yeah. that it, it, so Bob, you're absolutely correct. And that's the whole purpose of, that's the whole point of the GAPS diet. And th there's been thousands, maybe even more people who've been, you know, healed from their autoimmune disease. And I have cases in the book of, of just that. You basically start with the gut. But I would also point out in all the things you said, you know, colostrum and restore the ecosystem. I would also point out that if you're continuing to stimulate the humoral part of the immune system mm -hmm. with, you know, I refer to vaccines as humoral immune system stimulation techniques. Okay. That's the, that should be the technical name for them. Hmm. Yeah. And so if you say to yourself, okay, my problem is my humoral immune system is overstimulated, it would only make sense to not keep stimulating it because that's the problem. So you have to do both of those right, steps. Right, right, right. And I guess, yeah, actually that's what Melissa wanted to move forward into is more discussion about vaccines. But I just want to take a little tiny time out and, and basically – uh, you know, I mean, on this podcast, we can't educate everyone on how to do an autoimmune diet. I mean, it's very, very, very complicated and involved. It takes a lot of commitment, um, if you know, to do it right. Um, and uh, essentially, you basically uh, 
remove a lot of the grain-based carbs and the the cow's milk-based carbs out of your diet so that your gut can heal. You eat uh, you know, so that the, those kinds of carbs aren't feeding all the unhealthy germs in your gut so that the unhealthy germs will reduce and the healthy ones will, will multiply. Um, you have to eat quality foods. You have to have a, a healthy fat diet, eat moderate proteins, eat lower carbs. You have to incorporate bone broth uh, that, that has gelatin only from you know, 100% grass-fed pasture you know animals um, you need to um, you know uh, have to maybe go through maybe a six month elimination period of all the grains and beans and again milk products you can eat healthy lacto fermented uh, foods like sauerkraut kimchi homemade kefir and homemade yogurt because you're you're fermenting those lactose products. Um, you know, you know, a lot of healthy vegetables, some fruits. I mean, it kind of incorporates this whole lifestyle um, where you're essentially letting resetting the the gut health and the immune system. Uh, and if if you're not taking the time to go through that process, I think you're you're totally missing the foundation of healing from an autoimmune disease. And again, I don't think we need to go into too much detail on that, but you know, Dr. Cowan's book really, really spells that out. And I love your gardening background, Tom, uh, on how you, you incorporate all your gardening knowledge into the specific recommendations you give people um, because it, you know, it, it's, you really have to do it right. If you're going to do this in the most, uh, most healthy way, including a big uh, diversity in your diet. So, I just kind of wanted to sort of throw that out there. There are ways you can go about healing this um, so that you can move on with your health and hopefully live a, a, a healthier life, uh, more free of these kinds of chronic diseases. Right. Um, well yeah. Um, I guess uh, back to, yeah, back to vaccines. Cause uh, you know, I love that um, Dr. Cowan has like focuses on three specific vaccines in this book and how they kind of play a role in, um, in uh, in these issues, and uh, you know, Melissa kind of wants to explore, you know, starting off with one of those vaccines. Um, so two of the things I found really interesting, but one of them was was your chapter on polio, and um, the discussion on the sugar crop and the um, weed killers, or the you know, for the sugar crops, and, and later into DDT, and basically how polio was a virus in our guts for decades, if not longer than that, that was technically harmless for so many years until there were environmental contaminants that basically came into play. And once that combination happened, it essentially created what we all think of when we think of polio as the paralytic polio and the 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 more dangerous form of this particular virus. And uh, you mentioned a Detroit outbreak in 1958 where they said half of the cases didn't even show evidence of the polio virus, even though they were showing symptoms of paralysis. And this whole chapter I found so interesting. I haven't gone into my in-depth research on the polio vaccine and, and polio itself, and I know that um, there are lots of different theories on this, and, and uh, I found what you mentioned to be super interesting. So I would love to hear more about... Um, about what you've found with polio and, and how you've seen that combination of these environmental contaminants with the virus itself, how that's what turns into what we know is dangerous polio or the one everyone's so fearful of that, that they right. reference every you know, five seconds with the iron lung as, right. when it comes to this vaccine debate. I mean, this was pretty shocking to me. Right, this right, chapter. right. And I, you know, I, I will, you know, admit Tom that I, 
I I was a little skeptical of this chapter, just honestly, of course. I think any mainstream trained doctor would would find this chapter kind of very interesting because it goes so much against what we're taught. And and you know, basically the the gist of the chapter is even though polio virus was around and was in a lot of people back, you know, in the early part of the last century, and and um yeah, and maybe you know, some people were, were feeling sick from it and it was causing some minor illnesses. Uh, but also some people were happening to, become, happening to become paralyzed um, while this virus was also in them. Uh, uh, your book kind of brings about some historical perspective on the fact that there were other paralyzing agents in the environment at the time, namely uh, DDT. Um, uh, a pesticide that we know is a known neurotoxin and can cause paralysis symptoms. And so I think that the debate here is, were people getting paralyzed from infection from the virus? Or were all these people, were people being exposed to these environmental toxins that were, were causing paralysis? And were, were we falsely blaming this on the virus? Can we even know at this point, Tom? I mean, this was so long ago. How do you know? How do we know which of these theories is correct? Because I'll admit that I I wasn't totally convinced by your chapter, although it kind of opened my eyes that that you know maybe this is true, maybe it's not. So maybe why don't you uh, walk us through that as best you can? So one of the things that I find so interesting in medical debates these days is that if you take what I would say is the obvious thing to try to understand, it's often completely ignored. And so let let me give you a a slightly different example of that. So if you go to the CDC's chart, which is in my book on death rate from measles from the 1900s to 1900 to the year 2000, you see an elevation around 1910, 1920, and then a slow, gradual decline. Let's say, let's just use a number from 10 per 100,000 deaths, or, sorry, 100 per 100,000 to down to two by 1953. And then it stayed around one or two per 100,000 for the next decade, and then the 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 vaccine for measles was introduced in 1963. Anybody looking at that would say, uh, so we've had a, a, this, this very interesting and fairly robust decline in the death rate from measles from 1920 to 1953, which was at least 10 years before the vaccine was introduced. So what happened? I mean, and interest and my point is, you never hear about that. Like, was it right. um, getting rid of people pooping in the streets? Was it, you know, better <laughs> nutrition, worse nutrition? Was it, you know, going to school? Was it, I don't know what it was. And nobody, nobody says anything about that. Uh, and, and that's the obvious thing to be interested in because that's where the action is. That's where the sort of decline it may have been cod liver oil. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying I know either, because I don't know that anybody knows. And then when you apply that to polio, and of course you get a slightly different opinions about this, but it's very difficult to find any recorded um, um, 
mention of any kind of childhood paralysis before around 1873. And then there was situation both in Germany and in Vermont uh, where you started to see this uh, cropping up. So for the first time, doctors and health authorities were reporting children suddenly becoming paralyzed. Right. And, and, and I just, just to clarify, we do have some pretty good historical medical records of what medicine was like in the 1600s, 1700s, and, and 1800s, where we talked about all kinds of different diseases. And what you're saying is we don't have any mention of this type of paralytic disease inflicting anybody until the very end right. of the 1800s. Right. Right. Okay. And so, so that's, you know, and I always, I always find it kind of humorous when one of the things that conventional doctors in medicine often says is, well, you know, in 1920, they didn't know how to diagnose hay fever. That's why we think it's got, it's gotten so much more or peanut allergy. I can tell you, uh, it's not that difficult to diagnose hay fever. Like, hey, what happens when you go outside? Well, every time in, the, in June I go outside, I start sneezing. So that person has hay fever. And I don't think it's because nobody was smart enough to ask somebody whether they, felt they sneezed in June. Because I don't think that's right. The, the, yeah, the point being we wouldn't have been missing polio for all those centuries. Right. People yeah. would have known, yeah. yeah. So, so then they have this huge debate of what's the problem, and they basically fingered uh, lead arsenic because lead arsenic has a specific has basically does two things. One, it increases the porosity, the permeability of the gut, just like we talked about. So that's a problem. So you're going to get whatever's in the gut into the bloodstream, and second of all, it has a very specific toxic effect on the anterior horn cells of the spinal column, exactly the place that's affected with polio. So people knew that. And then there was also theories at the time that, um, that it was from some sort of infection. Now, if you go back into the literature, they say, well, they cleared this up with a very good experiment done in 1906. I probably shouldn't say this, Bob, but do you happen to know what that experiment was? Mm, no. You were, what, right. five years old back I then? I know. <laughs> right. She loves to tease me about my age. Sorry, I'm going to be 50 next month, by the way. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so, but we so, digress. Yeah. yeah, what happened in 1906? So they did an experiment that, quote, definitively proved that polio was an infectious disease. Okay. And it's still it's still referenced to this day. Oh, well we proved it in 1906. So here was the experiment. So the the first thing is they were having trouble um getting an animal model of polio because po- animals didn't get polio. So they decided they they had two children who died of of paralysis and they sucked their cerebrospinal fluid out. And they, they basically gave it orally to a couple baboons because baboons were at least a little bit susceptible to polio. And nothing happened. So then they took some of this cerebrospinal fluid. And this is unpurified cerebrospinal fluid from a child who died, right? 
That's what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Right. And they injected it subcutaneously and intramuscularly. Nothing happened. And then they injected it into the brains of these two baboons. And one of them died and the other one got paralysis. And that was the, the proof that polio was an infectious disease. Right, which is no proof at all. That is no right. proof at all. Anyways, that, you know, that's not a, a purification of the virus. That's, that goes against every tenet of how we prove an infectious etiology. Right, right. So, so then they go on for years, and, and it, co- it goes up and down, and nobody knows why, and it has this crazy distribution pattern, mostly with, you know, on the eastern seaboard and around uh, candy stores and all this stuff. And then we see another big spike in the 40s and the whole FDR and March March of Dimes. And then, uh, as you pointed out, there was this huge epidemic. And by the way, all this time, there's a huge contingent of doctors who are saying, this is not an infectious disease at all. This is a neurotoxin. And all, all this time, Lead arsenic was being uh, more widely distributed, mostly to get rid of gypsy moths, and mm-hmm. DDT was introduced sometime in the 30s. DDT also has two very specific effects. One is to increase the porosity of the, of the gut wall, and two, it has a toxic effect on the anterior horn cells of the spinal column, exactly the area affected with polio. Right. So by the 1940s, 1950s, people are dusting children before they go to school so they don't get flies with, with, with DDT. Jeez. As I po- pointed out in the book, I still remember uh, running oh, yeah. behind the, the sprayers on the ball fields because they sprayed out this very sweet-smelling gas, so it's like running in a cloud, and it smelled like bubble gum. Yeah. And that was DDT. <laughs> and And... And then they have an outbreak in Detroit, where I lived. I, I don't remember it, but it was around that time, right around the heavy spraying of the DDT. And they did extensive, you know, vaccine antibody studies to try to figure out what the, what the strain is, et cetera. And they find out that exactly 51% had any evidence of, of a viral infection at all with this thing called polio, which, I mean, even if one is skeptical of of this, it still brings up the question then, so what happened to the other 49%? Right. Right. It's probably possible that, I mean, so to me, there, there then is two possibilities. One is, that polio was a harmless viral infection in people with normal, healthy, intact guts. Mm-hmm. And then if you, feed, if you feed them lead arsenic and, and DDT or spray it on them or whatever, it increases the porosity of their, of their gut wall. And the combination of this anterior cell uh, toxin and the toxicity of the virus, that gives you polio. So that's one possibility. The other one is it has nothing to do with the virus at all, and that it was simply a toxicological problem, which there was many, many doctors at the time testifying in Congress saying, that's what this is. 
All we have to do is get rid of lead arsenic and get rid of DDT. And then eventually they did, and that was the end of polio. And that was in the early 60s, right? And that was the early 60s. And yeah. then and then they change, you know, they do things like in the early days to diagnose polio, it was you had to have an acute case of paralysis lasting 24 hours. And then they introduced the vaccine, and then they changed it to you had to have pr- paralysis for something like uh, six to eight weeks. So the incidence goes down. Why? Because they changed the criteria. Mm-hmm. And then you still see, you know, uh, for instance, you, you still see acute paralysis. You know, there was 40,000 cases in India, which right. is completely covered by the polio vaccine. They use a lot of DDT and other things like that. And they just don't call it polio anymore. They call it acute flaccid paralysis, which is exactly the diagno- the definition of what would have been called polio in the 1940s and 50s. And I just want to finish by, there's a quote I found from a guy named Albert Sabin. You remember him? Yes, yeah. He's the developer of the one of the two big uh, polio vaccines, mm-hmm. which is called the Sabin polio vaccine. So this was from the early 1980s. Sabin, who's one of the the godfathers of certainly the polio vaccine and the whole vaccine, uh, you know, program in general says, quote, official data has shown that large scale vaccination in the U.S. has failed to obtain any significant improvement of the diseases for which they were supposed to provide immunization. In hmm. essence, it was and is a failure. Wow. Wow. That's Where's like, that quote from? That's like, <laughs> is that one of his writings? Is that a. Yeah. It's okay. one of his writings. That's like oh. Bill Gates saying, mm-hmm. you know, these computers, that's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, that's a pretty big statement coming from uh, Dr. Sabin. And, and I'd say the yeah. polio vaccine was really kind of what solidified the vaccination program, uh, you know, mass yeah, vaccination right, program, because right. DPT had already been out, you know, experimenting with, with that earlier in the 20s and 30s, I believe. And then, and then here in the, in, after polio makes this big peak, like you're saying, it's on page 85 of your book where it shows um, this particular chart with the, how it rises in 1915, comes down for a bit, and then is back up again, peaking around 1950, 1952, and then drops down dramatically. Um, I'd say this is the polio vaccine seems to be the foundation of of how the vaccine program became um, so widespread, so sought after, and, and people would line universal. Up for it. Yeah, right. and it became like it's just part of what you do. Instead of it being like, oh, there's this thing and this is optional, it became like this is part of what we do. And um, yeah. it laid the groundwork for the the really strict you know, dogmatic vaccine structure that we have now, which is you don't argue with it. You mm-hmm. follow the CDC recommendations or the recommend- recommendations from the ACIP. And if you are to raise questions about any of these particular things, do you want polio to come back? You know, vaccines have saved humanity. This, they're responsible for um, reducing all the mortality in the 20th century. And, and without the polio vaccine, I mean, that is just a crucial puzzle piece to what makes them 
what gives them the strength that they have now. Like, honestly, if you take the polio vaccine out of the equation Mm -hmm. and then you on top of that add that measles is actually something you should be getting. Like well, those that's two crazy things. Talk. <laughs> I mean, those are the two things yeah. Yeah. that promote the entire narrative right. of the vaccine program. Like just those two things alone. And even though polio has not been here except for, you know, the vaccine strain polio for decades, people still use that as the reason why we need stricter mandates and we have to go tighter on those that one or two percent of people that are conscientiously opting out because we cannot get back to the days like polio. But if you're breaking down polio and you say, you know what? The vaccine was not responsible for um, this disease being reduced, and it's, it may not even be an infectious disease. It might have been completely related only to right. these environmental contaminants. It's like, then what do you stand on at that point when you're forcing or coercing people to follow the 69-dose protocol? Like, at that point, what, what are you standing on? Right, right. And I, I, I think, right. honestly, I, I think we, we can't know for sure, I think, you know, between the, the environmental toxins and the you know, DDT and the lead arsenic. I mean, of course, we know lead arsenic and DDT cause that type of par- paralytic problem. I think this, it'd be so hard to go back now and I think disprove that, that polio virus was part of this. So, so I, I, I don't know what to think about this. I'll, I'll be honest, but I think it, I think you're I'm gonna right. I'm going to give if you a couple months. In a couple months, you're going to be like, I <laughs> right. sat with this. It, okay, it right. makes sense. I don't need to sit with some of this stuff. The right. fact that there's even a potential yeah. that this there's a theory strong enough to yeah. say that that enough for me puts holes in the original right. argument that's supposed to be infallible. I appreciate your point about the whole um, thing hinges on the polio and the measles to a certain extent. Um, there's also another thing I would point out about that, if you permit me to just oh, yes. comment on oh, that. Oh, yeah. Because, uh, and I, Bob, I won't put you on the spot again for this, but it turns out that there's a paper that was written in, I think it was 2006, published in JAMA, which is, was written by a senior CDC scientist named Rausch uh, that is... is really the linchpin of the whole vaccine uh, theory. I don't know if you know that paper. It doesn't ring a bell, but I forget most things <laughs> nowadays. Right. Well, what's I'm, your name I'm, again? So, <laughs> I'm younger than you are, Tom, so I guess there's no excuse. Right. But, yeah, you yeah, eat, you eat healthier, you eat healthier true, than I do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the reason this is such an important paper is, A, it's the I believe the most cited paper in the history of vaccines. So in other words, if you go, if you read a paper, uh, somebody's studying something about vaccines or anything, they, they usually have an introduction and they say, vaccines have saved a lot of people's lives. Reference Rausch et al. 2006 JAMA. Okay. And, and so it, it's the most cited paper when you want to just throw out there vaccines have saved all these people's lives. And Rausch, like I said, was a CDC guy, and he was responsible for for running the numbers of what happened with vaccinatable diseases in the 20th century. And if you read Rausch et al., which unfortunately I did, because I have to do these podcasts and things, <laughs> um, uh, he, so he says measles was decreased 97% uh, pre and post vaccine era. Polio was decreased 93%. I'm not sure the exact number, but it's something like that. 
So there was about eight of them. Pre and post vaccine era, the incidence of, of mortality went down 93%, 97%, 95%, et cetera. So that's, that's basically the entire philosophical foundation of the vaccine program. So, and that's pretty impressive. You know, in other words, before vaccines, 97%. There's now after vaccines, 90% less mortality. And I would just point out that mortality is the best thing to measure because you don't want to know how many people got chicken pox because if nobody was injured, then it's no big deal. Right. You don't need, we don't need to know how many people get hangnails because hangnails <laughs> don't really bother most people. But and the other reason mortality is, is important is because besides it's, you know, the biggest deal is we have accurate numbers. So in other words, 97% decrease in mortality pre and post vaccine with let's say, uh, whatever measles. The, pr the question then is how did they get that number? Uh, and now most people don't have never read it. I never read it. I never heard of it before I started doing all this, you know, looking into it. But and you know, hopefully your listeners can follow this. So we already talked about this a little bit. In 1920, just to make a number up, there was 100 deaths per 100,000. And in the 1965, there was two deaths per 100,000 after the vaccine was introduced. So that is a 97% reduction in mortality pre and post vaccine. So it's accurate. The problem is 95% of the reduction or more came 10 years before there was a vaccine introduced. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And that's the same with polio. And that's the same with diphtheria. And that's the same with pertussis. So the, the, the funny thing about it is he, he's accurate. It is a 97% reduction. The, but on the other hand, it's not the reason. And it's clearly not the reason. And he knows it's not the reason. Right. And so um, is he purposely misleading? Because, I mean, any, yeah, I any scientist or any even non-scientist would read that and, 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 and see the real data and know, you know, how he's, you know what's, what he's stating wrong. But I feel like that's right. the CDC no. overall, is that it's not that they're lying. It's that yeah, there are omissions of right. truth or they're right. half-truths or it's true to an extent but without all of the information. Right. That's right. my, right. That's my right. d discomfort with the so whole that, thing, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that, that and what you said, the measles and the polio and that paper right there, those are the basis of this whole philosophy. There's a whole other um, example of this that I, I like how uh, Tom goes into his book. It's the chickenpox vaccine. And uh, Tom, did you want to, I mean, the, the way I kind of interpreted your chickenpox vaccine chapter, and, and if you wanted to say more about polio, certainly you can. Um, but basically, um, you, you talk about how, how chickenpox, again, catching chickenpox probably helps us and helps us have healthier immune systems and reduces other chronic disease, including cardiovascular disease. Um, but uh, you, you talk about shingles and the interesting phenomenon that it seems as if giving the chickenpox vaccine to our generation of children and, and robbing them of the natural disease is actually now creating 
the outbreaks of shingles. Of course. People are now getting shingles more than ever. And interestingly enough, the same company that made the chickenpox vaccine yeah. is also making a shingles vaccine. But that's not interesting because right. that's to be expected, don't you think? Like, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's just fascinating. They, they, they created a vaccine to create a disease to create another vaccine for that second disease. I mean, it's, 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 it's fascinating if that's all true. And, and I'd love to get your perspective, Tom, on, on the chickenpox vaccine and shingles. Now, as far as chickenpox, you know, it's, it's a very interesting story because, because, so they have this pretty harmless disease, you know, and one, one of the interesting things about chickenpox when they were introducing the vaccine, there was a, a big paper on this which said the reason, the best thing we can say about the reason to prevent chickenpox was not because it decreased mortality or decreased morbidity, but we could prove that the, the family of the children who get chickenpox lose a certain amount of income per year because the mother has to stay home from work. Right, right. yeah, I've seen that. Right. That, there was a, a big paper, and that's what got it started. So, right, right, which is which, so, ironically, is counteracted by people then having to miss work because of shingles twenty <laughs> years later, thirty years later. Right. But yeah. Anyway, I, I digress. Go ahead. Right. So, in this company, I don't remember if it was Merck, but I think it was. But I'm not sure about that. So don't don't quote me on that. So they come up with this shingles vaccine, but. That the shingles was not nobody cared about shingles in the in 1980s. I mean, I never saw anybody right. with shingles except right. certainly no teenagers. Very old, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no teenage, no young people. Right. It wasn't that bad. And then they came out with studies saying that the reason why people don't get shingles later in life is because as you go through your adult years, you're continually. Uh, exposed to children who get chicken pox, right. you know, your grandparents. Exactly. Yeah. So you house, get, you get better get... immunity as you get older. Boost. By yeah. those boost, exposures, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? yeah. You get boosted. And so you never get shingles. So the, and there, there was internal memos and emails saying, okay, the way to, to increase the, they, they have a technical business term for this, the penetra- penetration of, shingles into the market, right? In other words, the way to get people to say, oh my God, we have a problem with shingles, right. is to first get rid of chicken pox. Not because we have a medical reason to get rid of chicken pox, but that we know that if we get rid of children having chicken pox, that will increase the likelihood and the severity of an adult getting shingles. Exactly. And so then, so then we're going to wait 10 years until the increase in the population. And then people are going to say, you know, what the hell? We have to do something about shingles because everybody's getting it. Oh, by the way, we have a vaccine. And so then they start the shingles and, vaccine. And then they say they're helping you by giving them and to it's you. it's a brilliant strategy yeah. and, from a certain point of view. And somehow they... something that I... Yeah, but somehow they pin the shingles on all the unvaccinated kids. Oh, of They're somehow spreading shingles, even though we know that's not true. So, so you're saying there's right. an there's internal memo from the actual manufacturer that was saying we want to create a shingles vaccine. We want to we want to infiltrate the market with with a shingles vaccine, and, and how can we do it? Yes, the best <clears> way to do it is to decrease the incidence of chickenpox in the population. 
mm-hmm. that will increase the incidence of shingles and the severity, and then we're good. The other oh, thing, some people say, some people say, well, if if we wiped out chickenpox, then nobody would have shingles. The problem is there are very well documented cases of people getting shingles from the chickenpox vaccine. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, so that will ne- that will never work. Right. So there there is no rationale for this. All it did was was interfere with children's immune system and the, their healthy immune response from getting chickenpox, and increase the incidence and severity of shingles which is far worse than chicken pox. Well, I'll say... horrible trade. Yeah, I will say with my... So I unfortunately did give one of the vaccines my first got was the chicken pox, the varicella vaccine at her 12-month appointment. And um, the nurse giving it to her, I remember her as she's walking up with the, you know, with the vaccine, she says, the good news is... Now she'll never get shingles because she's getting this. And I remember thinking like, okay, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't know, I had not researched at that point any of any of this stuff and didn't have a, uh, a history of knowledge passed down to me, you know, in this, in this field to where I was aware. Um, I did know chickenpox was mild. I didn't really understand why we needed to get it, but this is what the pediatrician recommended at the time. And, um, and then she did have, that's really where I saw a, a very large increase of intestinal problems and digestive right, problems with right. her. She had these like chemical smelling diapers that smelled like a toxic kind of smell for months after that one. And, um, it was the first live virus, I think, that she had gotten, live mm-hmm. virus vaccine she had gotten. And um, and then, of course, later in my research, learning that actually having the chickenpox vaccine itself can trigger shingles later in life. And it's not only is it not a safeguard, but it can actually increase your, you know, increase your likelihood it was, of course, such a big moment um, of regret for yeah, something that's, that's so mild. Lie right there. Yeah, yeah, I know. That, and, that was a... Yeah, yeah. yeah so... Um, I mean... It's like, it's like uh, I'm sure you guys know this, but, uh, you know, none of these vaccines actually have placebo-controlled Right, trials. we do, yeah. And just yesterday I was sent a report um, that showed, this is a totally different vaccine called the Gardasil, which is mm-hmm. the HPV so-called right. cervical cancer. And what it showed was this, the five countries that, have adopted the, the most widespread use of the Gardasil. And so they showed the 10 years before the Gardasil was introduced, the incidence of invasive uh, cervical mm-hmm. cancer. And it, each year it had gone down. So I don't remember the exact numbers, but like 10 per 100,000 to 9 to 8 to 7 to 6 to 5. Then they introduced the Gardasil vaccine, and then they did, uh, you know, sort of had it be widespread acceptance. So they got it up to 95%. And lo and behold, they see an increase in invasive cervical cancer. Right. So in the older, in the slightly older population, like the five or 10 years after. Well, clearly, clearly people need more doses of that vaccine. (laughs) I mean, that would be the answer. Anyway. Yeah. Right. This is called a coincidence, Tom. This is, this is, there's no way you can put these two together. This is just just a big fat coincidence over and over. We see these coincidences. Correlation does not imply causation, Tom. As a doctor, you should know that. (laughs) 
Sorry. Oh, these Sorry. are the conversations we yeah. have every day yeah. about this. Stuff. We must be getting to towards the end of the uh, <laughs> of this episode. Um, <laughs> we always know we're wrapping it up when Melissa and I start giggling at each other about <laughs> getting about silly. Things. Anyway, but I, I mean, was there any any? I mean, this there, there's there are more things about the book that I think were very fascinating that we didn't even touch on. But I and some great I, things he added right. to the conversation right. today, and that were were yeah. not even in the book. So yeah, so yeah, amazing so, for listeners. I mean, any Melissa, any other final points you wanted to touch on? You or? know, one of your, one of my favorite quotes that you have in there is when you say the CDC should not have the power to both set the vaccine schedule for U.S. children and oversee vaccine safety. And I could not agree oh, yeah. more with that because yeah. there is we do know there's so much conflict of interest and you have an organization that's supposed to be independent, independently looking out for your health, only there to make sure the best for all of the American children. And essentially, there's so much infiltration that they're setting, you know, uh, recommended doses for things that you don't really need. They're making those mandated in several states, including things like HPV and now the flu vaccine, which is, I mean, that to me is just, I can't even, and you don't get into the flu or DPT in, in your um, in your book, but you you do talk about so much with this, and and um, and I almost feel like there's a part two that you could be writing. Maybe you're already working <laughs> on it. Maybe I'm nudging you um, because this is such a great book, and there's so much to be said about this. And also, I want to acknowledge that. At the end of the book, he talks about the autoimmunity diet. He talks about the um, the uh, menu plans and things like that, and where to access them. And he has a website that that where he does these um, powders from high quality vegetables that you can get and find ways to get them into your child's smoothies or, or into your diets without having to maybe take all the pounds and pounds of vegetables. Um, and I ordered some of them so I can uh, do my little review on that maybe sometime next week. Yeah, br- and, bring me a smoothie of the uh, next podcast yeah. for my snack. <laughs> Cause I don't have enough to do. Yes. Great idea. <laughs> but I just want, because we didn't get into that, I just want to give you that little plug that there's, there's more to to Dr. Tom than is that we've talked about. There's more than just even in this book. And I encourage people to check out his website, which is Dr. Cowan's Garden, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Dr. Cowan's yeah, Garden. There's that one, and there's, there's there, yeah, there, Human there, Heart Cosmic Heart. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Yes. Human Heart humanheartcosmicheart.com, which is a focuses on your book. I guess that, that revolves largely around uh, heart health as well. And, um, yeah. and um, uh, Tom, any last, any last words that you wanted to throw in there or have we, uh, have we um, exhausted your knowledge <laughs> on, on these topics? <laughs> it's good enough. Yeah. All right. Right. Uh, and, and I, I do have a couple more books coming out. I, oh, good. Uh, at least, one more soon, and then, uh, believe it or not, they asked me to write a book called How to Raise Healthy Children in a Toxic World, and I, I say that's that's uh, Tom Cowan, un, un, what's the word? Unapologetic. <laughs> yeah, unapologetic. <laughs> so, wow. And yeah, what's, the, what's the new book, what, or what's the next one? Are you allowed to say what it is, the title? Uh, to look out for? Yeah, I'm not sure what we know the title. Okay. It, it focuses on cancer and the biology of water, which is one okay. of the Oh, nice. Right. I'll definitely uh, make sure to um, to get those when they come out because your, your writing's great. And it's nice. You know, the book's not, this particular sure. book, the mm-hmm. Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illness, it's not huge. It's not no, overwhelming. It's, it's actually, not intimidating. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's short. Been, it's it's simple. Easy read. Um, yeah, exactly. But full, of, but full of good information. Yeah, and I, I would highly recommend right. it. I think if you haven't, 
an autoimmune disease and you want to get on the path to healing, it's a, it's a great, a great place to start. And great for everyone else also. Like, I mean, really anybody could benefit from Mm -hmm. these type of nutritional changes, even if you're doing them in in some small part. And then the book covers so many things that are, are general. Anyone can really benefit from this. So I, I think it's a a great book. One of my favorite, uh, ones that I've, I've read over the year. And, um, and I thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to talk okay, with us. Thank and... you, guys. Yep. Right, right, Tom. Yeah, we'll be at, yeah. Here. Well, thank you, and we'll be in touch in the future. I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. Right. Take care. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Well, thanks, you guys, for uh, joining us on the vaccine conversation, and we'll and make sure to check out part one oh, yeah, of yeah. this also to get more exactly. of Dr. Tom. Cowan. Yes, yes. Oh, and we just realized um, there is a way for you to sign up uh, for our email newsletter. We're actually going to start producing an email newsletter um, for the a vaccine. monthly newsletter. So yeah. it's not over. It's like right, your right. inbox is yeah. not going to be inundated. Yeah, um, you know, with a, a monthly uh, vaccine conversation newsletter. And so if you go to our immunityeducationgroup.org website, you'll see the newsletter sign up and. And a number of people have signed up already over these last few years. Uh, we've never done anything with, with no, we've never with really advertised so like, it. Either, hey, let's have so. a newsletter. Is Melissa's yeah. idea? So, um, so yeah, we'll get on. It's her idea, but I think I'm going to have to be the one that, that does the work. On no, it, no, no, no. I'm running I around. Want, with I want to do this oh, okay. one too. Okay. Well, I want what I want to do is I want to highlight maybe the most important or interesting articles yeah. and yeah. and synopsis uh, and synopses of all of the episodes um, that we've covered in that one month. Yeah. So it'll just be like a little summary of everything, and then it'll in case you've missed one and, and you realize, oh, I want to hear more about that, it'll lead you back yeah. to the podcast. Cool. All right. But anyway, yeah, uh, sign up for our email uh, newsletter on immunityed.org or immunityeducationgroup.org and we'll see you next time on and we the need next to video episode. one of these yeah so I know you keep saying video. that I, I noticed you wore makeup today I so did I thought it. maybe you thought like no it's called taking a shower this is what oh, happens okay. when you this get to take a shower, shower. Okay. All right, anyway <laughs> <laughs> okay the podcast is over we'll see you guys next time <laughs> bye we're going to The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as medical advice. Always consult your healthcare professional for information on vaccines and infectious diseases.